0: Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Shaw, this is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Tuesday, October 2nd. It's been a weird day. Usually I record my show Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Today I move Monday show back to Tuesday. It's worth it, I promise. It's, the show is much better because I did not do it yesterday. I promise it's worth it. It was worth the wait. I am recording another show tomorrow on Wednesday. Um, I got to say something first. Before we start the show, I just had the most amazing weekend. I got to meet one of my broadcasting heroes, Yogi Roth. I spent my whole Saturday on set filming for Pac-12 Network. It was unbelievable. It was was amazing. And it made me realize how much I just love the sport of football. I just, if I can, I want to be around football the rest of my life, whether I'm covering it or doing a podcast or working in football as a coach or I have no idea but I know that I this is my favorite thing in the world this is the game of football, and I want to be around it as long as I can. And I, I just love sports in general, basketball, everything. I love, love being around sports. It's my favorite thing. I want to start with this today. Patrick Mahomes is being compared to Brett Favre. And I want to start with this. There's a reason why Patrick Mahomes is not Brett Favre. Do you know what it is? It's interceptions. So far in 2018, Patrick Mahomes has 14 touchdowns and zero interceptions. Through four games, zero interceptions. Last night, I combed through every single one of Brett Favre's seasons. This is 1992, 1993, four, five, six, seven, 4, 5, 6, 7, all through 2010 when he retired. Brett Favre never got through four games, the first four games of an NFL season, without an interception. Not once. In fact, it wasn't even close. Brett Favre never even got through the first three games of an NFL season without an interception. And we're talking, he threw three interceptions in game one in 1995, three interceptions in game one in 1999. In 2003, week one, he had four interceptions. We have not seen that type of play from Patrick Mahomes. I understand the comparison between Brett Favre and Patrick Mahomes. They have both incredible arm strength. They do things and make throws that you're like, whoa, I didn't know people could do that. It's it's inhuman sometimes. But there is a big difference between Brett Favre and Patrick Mahomes, and it's the preparation. It's decision-making. This might sound kind of out there, but right now, I would rather have Patrick Mahomes than Brett Favre. Brett Favre once threw 29 interceptions in a season. I don't know that Patrick Mahomes is going to play like that his whole career. I don't think so. I don't see that coming from Patrick Mahomes. You know, I've been very cautiously optimistic about Patrick Mahomes. He had 13 touchdowns in the first three games of the year. I said, that's really impressive. But we got to see if it continues. What, how's Patrick Mahomes going to deal with adversity? How is he going to deal with struggling? Last night on Monday Night Football, Patrick Mahomes showed what he is. Last night against the Broncos, that's what I've been waiting for from Patrick Mahomes. He was very, very impressive. In fact, I was more impressed with Patrick Mahomes last night than when he had six touchdowns in one game. How do you deal with adversity? How did Patrick Mahomes handle being down 13-10 to 10 at halftime? Travis Kelsey, his favorite tight end, his best receiver maybe, had no catches in the first half. How do you handle adversity? Last night, Monday Night Football against the Broncos was just different. For the first time, he didn't have everything going for him. Patrick Mahomes was up 35-10 to 10 against the 49ers in Week 3. Against the Broncos, it wasn't like that. And here's what happened. Five minutes to go. Patrick Mahomes got the ball, down three points, and it was a massive, massive moment. This was Patrick Mahomes' moment to prove himself, and he did. He delivered. And Patrick Mahomes didn't just deliver in the big moment. He overcame massive, massive obstacles. Just incredible what he did. I mean, first of all, it's extremely loud in that Denver Broncos stadium. It's, it's one of the loudest places in the NFL to play. But Patrick Mahomes' first test came on third and five. Third and five, Patrick Mahomes throws a left-handed pass to get the first down. Out of nowhere, he just pulls a left-handed pass out of his rear end. I'm like, what? I didn't know you could do that. But it gets even more interesting. Later, Patrick Mahomes is facing second and 20. For a lot of people, you get a holding call. Second and 20 is insurmountable. He gets a nine-yard gain. Awesome. Back in business. 3rd and 11, that's somewhat manageable, right? No, that was called back as well. And so now Patrick Mahomes was facing 2nd and 30. Oh, and without any problem at all, he throws a 23-yard pass down the right sideline, sets up 3rd and 7, and on 3rd and 7, Patrick Mahomes threw a 35-yard completion to put the ball into the red zone. I'm sold. I, I, fine, I get it. It wasn't just the adversity. It wasn't just being down at halftime, coming back. It wasn't just the big moment. It was, not only did he deal with the big moment, but things didn't go his way in the big moment. And he still overcame. He made things happen. His poise under pressure, his playmaking ability. In the moment, it was unreal. Unreal. Not to mention, there's a history now of Patrick Mahomes delivering late in games. This is not the first time he's made something happen at the end of the game. And not the first time against the Denver Broncos. Week 17 last year, on the final drive, Patrick Mahomes took the Chiefs down the field. They scored the game-winning field goal, won the game, beat the Broncos. And so now what do we have? We have a history of Patrick Mahomes delivering late in the game. He can win from ahead. He can come back and win games. We're five games into Patrick Mahomes' career, and he's unbelievable. In fact, I, I do believe he's undefeated as a starter. <laughs> <laughs> and you can say, well, Jimmy Garoppolo started 5-0 last year, and he struggled this year. This is not Jimmy Garoppolo. I love Jimmy Garoppolo. I'm a big fan of Jimmy Garoppolo. I hope he succeeds. Patrick Mahomes is light years ahead of Jimmy Garoppolo not holding the ball too long, making big plays, not throwing interceptions, making better decisions, making throws that Jimmy Garoppolo couldn't dream of. Right now, we have Patrick Mahomes, who has 14 touchdowns, zero interceptions in 2018, and he has an undefeated record. I took a chance early this year. I, be- I said I believed in Patrick Mahomes. And it looks like that was the right call. Believing in Patrick Mahomes, I won, I got it right, Somehow. But I mean, think about this, five minutes left with the ball, down three. Do you think Alex Smith, the former Chiefs quarterback, would have won that game? I don't think he would have. He certainly would not have thrown a left-handed pass on third and five. He would not have overcome second and 20. He would not have overcome second and 30. That 35-yard pass on third and seven, Alex Smith doesn't have that. I'm going to make this comparison all year. I hope, I, I hope at some point I move on. But I can't get over the fact that Chiefs took a big risk. Moving away from Alex Smith, and it's not only worked out; it has been the best thing the Chiefs could have imagined it doing. Right now, Patrick Mahomes is the reason the Kansas City Chiefs are four zero. It's impressive. It's wonderful. And you know, I went from wondering, is this a, is the success going to continue? Because I've been optimistic for cautiously optimistic for the past three weeks, saying it's really good right now. But let's see. Let's hmm hmm. It might it might explode. It might might go wrong. You never know. I have now shifted my mentality from cautiously optimistic to now I expect Patrick Mahomes to play at a very high level for the rest of his career. I I expect it now. I expect him to continue this. And that's not to say he's not going to struggle. I guarantee you at some point the Kansas City Chiefs are going to lose a game. And at some point Patrick Mahomes is going to throw an interception, but that does not mean you should panic. The first sign we get from Patrick Mahomes, oh no, he threw an interception. Oh no, they lost the game. They struggled a little bit. Have poise. Have patience. It's okay. Take deep breaths. Because I really believe Patrick Mahomes is a special player. Not saying he's not going to struggle. He's going to throw picks. He's going to lose a game. But don't overreact when the Kansas City Chiefs at some point lose a game this year. Remember, Brett Favre, the guy you keep comparing Patrick Mahomes to, would have had seven interceptions by now, four games into the year. Brett Favre had 29 interceptions in one season. So when Patrick Mahomes inevitably hit some kind of rough patch... Don't give up on him, because what we've seen in the first four games is a special player. In fact, his first five games, we've now seen Patrick Mahomes is a special quarterback. He's not only incredible at reading defense, he's not only incredible with his arm, his ability, Every it's not only incredible there. Mentally, up top, in the big moments, he is unfazed. And not only is he unfazed, he can overcome insurmountable obstacles, things that most guys can't overcome. I watched the Dolphins on Sunday go from first and 10 to first and 20, and that was too much. They couldn't get 20 yards and get a first down. Patrick Mahomes is not phased by that situation at all. Patrick Mahomes is a special quarterback. And again, because of the lack of interceptions, I would even go on to say, I would take right now Patrick Mahomes over Brett Favre. Call me crazy, but 14 touchdowns, no interceptions, incredibly efficient, and a huge arm. Right now, I would take Patrick Mahomes over Brett Favre like that. All right. We have a huge show today. I am so, so excited. I did something different um, that I've never quite done before. Um, I got NFL Game Pass, which means that I now have unlimited options. I can watch every game. I can watch a bunch of different camera angles. I just have to wait until Monday for them to come out, uh, for the film angle to come out, yada, yada. Um, What I did this week was I wrote down a bunch of questions. Sunday night, I came to Sunday night the big football games of the weekend had already happened. I wrote down a bunch of questions. For example, why did the Patriots murder the dolphins 28 to seven? Or how did Mitch Trubisky throw six touchdowns? Why did Ryan Fitzpatrick get benched? What happened? How was Baker Mayfield's first start? Those are the things I'm going to work you through in this episode. I'm going to answer all those questions. Many more. I'm going to talk about the Vikings. They're, concerning in big games, yada, yada. But that's what I want to do. I want to break down Mitch Trubisky coming up ahead. We're going to talk about the Patriots. We're going to talk about Ryan Fitzpatrick. I have a lot to say. I'm really, really excited. And of course, we're going to talk about the Colts' mistake, that big fourth down call. Was it right? Was it wrong? I'll tell you all of that and more ahead. Remember, you can subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour-long podcast on YouTube as well as my best Most interesting clips. If you like Strong Opinion Sports as much as I do, help me grow by telling your friends about the show. Share this on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. I want to do this as my full-time job someday. I would love that. I would love to put the show on Twitch. I'd stream it live every single day. I would hire a producer so he could help me do it daily, do it more, get more content out. Uh, I need your help for that. Continue to tell your friends about Strong Opinion Sports. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Give it a review on iTunes. Just help me grow by telling your friends about this show. All right. I got a new water bottle, by the way. Um, uh, courtesy of Pac-12 Network. It's fantastic. It is not a hydro flask, I have learned, but it is very cool. It's it's better than my old... I was using just a plastic, like, Evian bottle, so it's much better. Um, I want to now shift gears to the Bears and Buccaneers game, because I wrote down this question. Mitch Trubisky had six touchdowns. What in the world happened. How does it happen? I watched all the film. I reviewed it. I came up with my opinion. Um, I want to share my analysis slash my opinion with you guys right now. So Mitch Trubisky had six touchdowns. Mitch Trubisky had six touchdowns on Sunday against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And it was awesome. It was fantastic. Uh, This is the first time Bears fans have really had a reason to finally believe in Mitch Trubisky. I mean, I'm sure that people who see him every day, people in the Bears facility go, yeah, he's working really hard. But if you're not around Mitch Trubisky every day, this is the first glimmer of hope Mitch Trubisky has given Bears fans. Now, Mitch Trubisky is improving tremendously, but he also does have a long way still to go. But I also would not put Mitch Trubisky in a box. We tend to say, well, Mitch Trubisky's doing really good, but his ceiling is this. His ceiling is Case Keetum or Kirk Cousins or... Drew Brees, you know, we make a comparison. We say, that's Mitch Trubisky's ceiling. And I don't think we're ready to do that yet. I think you should have faith in Mitch Trubisky. Here's why. I remember when I first learned how to drive a manual car. It's a stick shift. It's much more difficult than driving a regular car. There's more moving pieces. And I just felt hopeless. There was a day where I was driving to work, and I got stuck on a hill. I'm in the middle of the intersection, totally embarrassed. And I was like, man, I'm never going to figure this out. I, I am just it's horrible. This, this stick shift thing is not working out. And I know that's how a lot of Bears fans have felt about Mitch Trubisky to this point. People have said, it's hopeless. We watched on, on, against the Seahawks where Mitch Trubisky struggled. They won the game, but it was ugly. He missed a lot of open passes. And I was like, man, is Mitch Trubisky ever going to figure it out? And I'll tell you, the first time I drove to work without any problems was a big triumphant moment for me. I was like, yes! I made it. It was good. It worked. And I felt progress for the first time ever. I I finally had hope. Oh, this thing driving a stick shift is going to work out. Well, Mitch Trubisky just had the same triumphant moment on Sunday against the Buccaneers. He had six touchdowns. It does not mean he has everything figured out. But it does show that all his hard work is paying off. This is the first time Mitch Trubisky's had a big-time massive success. His obvious hard work is finally paying off. We saw an improvement in Mitch Trubisky. So I saw a lot of good. I watched the Bears-Buccaneers game. I broke it down in NFL Game Pass. Uh, Saw a lot of good, saw a lot of bad. I want to talk about all of it. The first thing that was much improved on Sunday was Mitch Trubisky's accuracy down the sideline. I have not seen that to this point. I've seen him underthrow a lot of passes. He still did that occasionally. But all in all, his, his throwing the ball down the field down the sideline, long passes to Taylor Gabriel, long passes to uh, Tariq. They were fan- Tariq Cohen. They were fantastic. It was awesome. Now, there's one thing I saw when watching film. He is improving. Now, weeks one through three, Mitch Trubisky missed a lot of a a lot of guys who were wide open. He would have a guy wide open. He'd either miss the throw or he simply wouldn't see him and he'd come off to something else. And you can't do that. As an NFL quarterback, if someone's wide open, you have to complete that pass. You have to throw an accurate pass and you have to see that they're open and throw them the ball. In week four, Mitch Trubisky made a lot of those throws. He made a lot of throws to people who were wide open. He recognized they were wide open. He delivered the football, made that play. It was awesome. That was a massive improvement for Mitch Trubisky. That's why he had six touchdowns. And despite killing it, I know that Mitch Trubisky was fantastic. Despite having a great game, he he was 19 for 26, had 354 yards passing, six touchdowns, did not have an interception. It's great. And despite all that success, Mitch Trubisky still left a lot on the table. There's still a lot of room for him to grow. I mean, at times watching Mitch Trubisky, I'll be honest, it was frustrating. It was like, ooh, you should make that throw. He had a wide open 10 yard out, for example, early in the game, completely missed it. Or he had a comeback wide open. He, he does play action. He's sitting there. He looks at the guy. He makes eye contact with Taylor Gabriel. Doesn't pull the trigger. Doesn't throw the ball. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? And what he did is he waited for Taylor He waited for Taylor Gabriel to get out of his break, start coming across the field. Then he tried to throw the ball to Taylor Gabriel. His shoulder was pointed up. And the ball sailed on him, incomplete pass. And that's why it's been really frustrating. He was late a couple times on some plays that are, they look really good, but the ball is late. I mean, or for example, there's a throw to Allen Robinson down the left sideline where Allen Robinson beat his man by like three steps and... He just underthrew the ball, and it was an incomplete pass because of Mitch Trubisky missing the throw. He either missed the throw, he wouldn't pull the trigger to guys who were open, or he simply didn't see that. And that did happen again in this game, even with six touchdowns. There's a lot of improving left for Mitch Trubisky to do. Now, I know it's frustrating sometimes to watch Mitch Trubisky, but again, I would encourage you, relax. He's still a work in progress. I think a lot of people, we get so eager to go... He's done growing. This is the best he's ever going to get. We're done. He's reached his ceiling. No. Mitch Trubisky is very much still improving every single week. He's watching film. He's doing a lot of hard work. It's very obvious. Mitch Trubisky has a lot of hope. But right now, he's kind of like a building under construction. You don't know how big the building's going to get, but we all look. We know that the building is still under construction. We're not going to judge it for what it is yet. At some point, Mitch Trubisky is going to stop having massive, massive growth. But the truth is, he's going to be under construction the rest of his career. Guys like Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, they are always making tweaks as their career goes on. But the leaps and bounds, the big, massive improvements for Mitch Trubisky, they are going to stop at some point. But there's a great example of Mitch Trubisky's improvement even during the game. There was a moment where the Buccaneers completely blew up one of the screen passes, and Mitch Trubisky still tried to fit it in. Ball got tipped up. Almost got interception. He was lucky that the ball hit the ground. Now, there was a similar situation later in the game where, again, Mitch Trubisky goes to throw a screen pass. The Buccaneers completely blow it up. And instead of trying to force it in like he did last time, he learned from his mistake. He threw it in the dirt, incomplete pass, lived to see another day. It was smart. It was awesome. Now, I would love to see Mitch Trubisky hit every single throw downfield. It's not going to happen, at least not yet. There is still certainly some improving he can do. Eight minutes left before halftime, Mitch Trubisky threw a wheel route to Taylor Gabriel. He threw a dime. But then later on the same throw, he missed it. And it's like, sometimes you're hitting guys in stride when they're beating, beating a man by one step. And then other times he cannot make the same exact throw. It's kind of puzzling. I would like to see more consistent accuracy for mitch trubisky but the number one thing that mitch trubisky needs to improve on by far is anticipation anticipating when a guy is going to be open this is the wheel route i wanted to talk about early in the game there was a wheel route that mitch trubisky threw to Tariq cohen it was a huge gain i think it was like a, like a 35 yard game it didn't score but it was an awesome throw it looked really really good Everything looked good. But when you go and you look at the wide angle, you realize, uh, Mitch Trubisky's late. The throw should have been out much, much earlier. It would have been a touchdown if Mitch Trubisky hadn't double clutched it and thrown it late. There's something that Mitch Trubisky does that is concerning. It's he lacks anticipation. Trubisky's waiting for people to be open and then throwing the ball. He's not anticipating when they're going to be open and throwing the ball before they break. If I'm going to cut across the middle, if I'm going to cut left, I'm going to plant one foot in the ground and then go left. And when you plant your foot on the ground and get prepared to go left, that's when the quarterback should throw the ball, depending on the window. But in that situation, he should have thrown the ball the minute the foot was planted in the ground. Often what Mitch Trubisky does is wait till after the guy plants his foot on the ground and runs three steps to the left. He's already moving left. Then Mitch Trubisky throws the ball. It's often too late. He waits until guys are open rather than throwing them open. I would compare that to Jared Goff. What Jared Goff does all the time is throw people open. A guy's not open yet. Jared Goff will throw the ball to an open area, lead the guy open. And what that means is Jared Goff is throwing people open. He makes a guy open with where Jared Goff throws the ball. In comparison, Trubisky's waiting until guys are open and then throwing the football. And that's where the Bears head coach, Matt Nagy, comes into play. Their offensive coach is a genius. They have Mark Helfridge, a great offensive coordinator. Matt Nagy's an incredible play designer. Matt Nagy, the Bears offensive coach and Bears head coach, is probably the best offensive mind right now in the NFL. The Bears wide receivers are open by 10 or 15 yards, yards constantly. I would even say Matt Nagy is playing. He's coaching better than Sean McVay is the Rams head coach. If I'm a receiver in the NFL, I want to go play for the Bears because I know I'm going to be wide open. I'm talking there are not people around the Bears wide receivers for 10 or 15 yards. It's like college. They are wide open. And that's why Mitch Trubisky keeps getting away with being late with a football. If a guy's open by 10 yards, I can throw it to him, and there's no chance of that getting intercepted. It's when guys are—the windows get tighter as teams adjust. That's when you get concerned with Trubisky. Here's the coolest part of what the Bears are doing. The Bears are running the same concepts that everybody else is doing, but they're doing it in a more creative way and getting the routes coming from different areas. Here's what I mean. There's a touchdown to Tariq Cohen late in the game. It's a regular concept everybody runs. It's a vertical with two slants underneath. One guy goes deep, two guys come across the middle. But Matt Nagy puts his own creative spin on the play. Instead of having three receivers run a vertical and two slants. He has Tariq Cohen come back into the backfield at the running back position and run the slant from there. And it, that's why he scored a touchdown is because of the action. It's the same concept everybody runs, but rather than having three receivers, he has two receivers and a running back run that concept. And that's why Tariq Cohen scored the touchdown. I don't know. It's interesting. So Mitch Trubisky is showing massive, massive improvement. He's getting a lot of help from his coach. His coach is doing more creative things, getting guys wide open. But Mitch Trubisky needs to continue to improve. If he doesn't keep improving, then he's going to struggle down the road because other teams are going to adjust. Teams are going to make adjustments to what the Bears are doing on offense. These wide open guys who are open by 10 or 15 yards, those windows are going to shrink. And so Trubisky needs to improve his anticipation and get ready for when teams adjust, he needs to counter by being earlier to throwing the ball. There were only four games in. People are going to watch the Bears' offense and make adjustments. He needs to keep improving and making his own adjustments. And if he does, the Bears are going to be incredibly successful. So Bears fans should be very hopeful. Clearly, Trubisky's making massive improvements. If you watch the Seattle game and then watch that Buccaneers game, you, you'll be very excited. He will not miss people wide open anymore. He's not, it doesn't seem like he's going to do that. He's learned from the past. He's making improvements. And don't put a ceiling on Mitch Trubisky. We don't know where he's going to end up. We don't know if he's going to be Tom Brady. I don't think so. We know he's not going to be Patrick Mahomes. His arm is not there. But Mitch Trubisky could be incredibly, incredibly successful. Don't put a ceiling on the kid. Let him improve. Give him some space. He's going to keep making mistakes, but he's also going to keep improving. So give him time. Be patient. He's giving you hope. If you're a Bears fan and he throws a bonehead interception next week, don't be mad at him. It's very obvious. It's very obvious. He's putting a lot, a lot of work in in the film room. He's got probably no life. I would imagine all his time is going to football, and it's, it's, very, it's showing up on the field. Those six touchdowns are a product of Mitch Trubisky's hard work. He just can't stop. He has to keep going. He has to keep improving. If he doesn't keep improving, then I'll be concerned. But it, if he keeps improving, everybody's going to be excited. He's going to win a lot of games, and he's going to be much better. So have patience. Let him keep improving. But do recognize... The kid is working hard. The kid is getting better. He just needs to continue to get better. My next question I wrote down was, why did Ryan Fitzpatrick get benched? What in the world happened to Ryan Fitzpatrick? So Ryan Fitzpatrick got benched in the Bears game at halftime. He got off to a huge start of the season. Remember, he had 11 touchdowns in the first three games he had over 400 yards passing in every single one of the first three Buccaneers games, and then against the Bears, out of nowhere Ryan Fitzpatrick struggled. He was nine for 18 passing had 126 yards in the first half, zero touchdowns and an interception. So what happened? Why did this? Why did it come to this? Why did he get benched? Well, the Bears were down 38 to three at halftime, and that's when the Buccaneers pulled. Ryan Fitzpatrick put in Jameis Winston, the former starter, now then backup. It's very confusing. What happened? Why did it come to this? There were a couple factors that contributed to Ryan Fitzpatrick really struggling against the Bears. First is very simple. He struggled. He did not make a lot of great reads. He missed some throws that should have been touchdowns or should have been completions. And he missed a couple reads that again would have been touchdowns, would have been completions. He had he, he got fixated on OG Howard at one point in the red zone and missed a guy come wide open right in front of him, but he was looking left, never saw the coverage, missed a guy wide open. I mean, look, he missed, he missed Barber on the left side. Again, a pass where his feet weren't set. He threw it into the ground. Those were two instances where you got to make that throw. You got to hit Barber on the left in the goal, on the goal line. You got to have a t- If there's a guy wide open in the end zone, you can't miss him. He did miss those throws. But it's also worth noting, Ryan Fitzpatrick did not get a lot of help against the Bears his receivers did not make plays Mike Evans had one catch for only five yards in the first half against the Bears he had a dropped pass Mike Evans did he also missed a a deep ball down the sideline he looked over the wrong shoulder instead of the inside shoulder there were times where Fitzpatrick threw good passes and his receivers did not help him and times in the first three weeks where guys would have caught the ball OJ Howard missed a lot of plays Mike Evans missed a couple plays. I mean, here's an example. Mike Evans had 83 yards against the Eagles, 137 yards against the Steelers, and 147 yards against the Saints. He was held to only six catches for 59 yards against the Bears. I also was not impressed with Dirk Cutter's offense. Dirk Cutter is the head coach for the Buccaneers. Um, Apparently, the Buccaneers only have four routes in their entire route tree. They have a speed out, a curl, a vertical, and a deep dig. Those are the only four routes I saw in the first half for the Bears' Uh, the Buccaneers against the Bears. I mean, there was one point where on third and long, the Buccaneers simply ran four 10-yard curls, which is incredibly easy for the defense. They sit on it. That's when Ryan Fitzpatrick threw his interception. There's nowhere to go with the ball in that situation. That's a bad play call. And so you can argue, yes, Ryan Fitzpatrick screwed up, but it was not all his fault. He also did not get any help from his wide receivers, and he did not get a lot of help from the play calling. But I don't want to make up, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to defend Fitzpatrick too hard. His run is over. Uh, it's somewhat his fault. It's somewhat not his fault. But as far as football goes, I don't want to talk about off the field stuff. As far as football goes, Jameis Winston being the starter for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, that is the right move. That is what should happen. Yes, there's an ethical dilemma, a one that I i don't know how to answer for it. I feel weird about it. I don't really want to talk about it. There's an ethical dilemma that if you want to argue Jameis Winston should not be the starting quarterback for the Buccaneers, I respect people with that opinion. I I think that's a very valid way to feel. I don't want to go there. I want to talk about sports, and so I'm going to talk about football because as far as football goes, on the field stuff, Jameis Winston is the right guy moving forward. He should be the starting quarterback if you only consider football. Receivers stepped up in the second half. It was kind of clear to me, oh, receivers want to play with Jameis Winston. They made more plays for him than they did for Ryan Fitzpatrick. It felt like the team got their spirit lifted when they were playing with Jameis Winston. It's also very clear, Jameis Winston's making a ton of money. The Buccaneers invested in Jameis Winston. They did not invest heavily in Ryan Fitzpatrick. Their future is not tied to Ryan Fitzpatrick. Jameis Winston is only 24 years old. He's the best chance for the Buccaneers to have a franchise quarterback moving forward. He also did some all right stuff. I mean, Jameis Winston hit some underneath throws that... Ryan Fitzpatrick missed. There were a couple times where Ryan Fitzpatrick had out routes wide open. He didn't throw the ball. He'd hold onto it too long. He'd roll right. It didn't work. Janus Winston made quicker decisions, was more efficient with the football. That is why he should be the starting quarterback moving forward. I will say my big worry about the Buccaneers moving forward is their play design. What I saw from Dirk Cutter, especially when you compare it to Matt Nagy, the Bears head coach, the offense for the Buccaneers is not creative. It's not interesting. They ran literally like four routes, and it's really easy to prepare to stop the Buccaneers. They're not doing a lot of f- extremely creative play calling. It's very basic. It's very bland. It's easy to prepare for. It's easy to stop. And that's my concern of the Buccaneers. I think that actually I haven't been paying close enough attention to the Buccaneers. Maybe the reason why, why, why Jameis Winston has struggled with interceptions at times in his career is because... He's getting bad play calls. He's getting plays that are not creative. They're not interesting. They're not setting him up to succeed. And it's very possible that a lot of Jameis Winston's past struggles with the Buccaneers may not have all been his fault. They could have been play calling. So that's a narrative I'm going to follow the rest of the year. I'm very interested in that. Um, I'm pretty sad that Ryan Fitzpatrick, his run ended. I, I, I liked that story. I liked you know the veteran quarterback rising from the ashes. That was a cool story. It's now over, and we got to move forward and analyze how does Jameis Winston play the rest of the year? Because I do think he's on the hot seat. I wonder, you know, if the Buccaneers struggle, if they're in a striking distance to get a rookie quarterback, if they can get Justin Herbert, they might want to take that opportunity because Jameis Winston has not been extremely extremely reliable on or off the field. And so I'm going to follow Jameis Winston. I'm really curious to see how he plays the rest of the year. Um, and I'm not sold it's all his fault, though. Again, the offense for the Buccaneers was not well-executed on Sunday. There were not great play calls. It was not creative play design. And I'm wondering if some of the Buccaneer struggles on offense, if they're not all the quarterback's fault, they might also somewhat be the coach's fault. How about this? Let's talk about Baker Mayfield. The Browns lost to the Raiders 45-42 to 42 in overtime on Sunday. It was a bummer, but I didn't. I wasn't too invested. I was just curious. How does Baker Mayfield play? And that's what I want to focus on. Let's talk about Baker Mayfield's first start in the NFL. Baker Mayfield was 21 for 41 at 295 yards passing, two touchdowns, two interceptions, and a fumble lost in his first start against the Oakland Raiders. Uh, the first thing I wrote down is a lot of incompletions. He had, he was only he had he was had a 51 percent completion percentage against the Raiders. He did have some drops, but it's not pretty. That's you know 21 for 41. That's that's not. A glowingly great performance. That's a solid performance. That's okay. Um, it's also worth noting the Browns ran for 208 yards. I don't know they're going to do that the rest of the year. The Raiders front end is not very good. Um, and that allowed Baker Mayfield to use play action quite often. He did it really well. I just wonder in the future, are the Browns going to run the ball for 208 yards every single game? I'm not sure. I doubt it. Um, here's my immediate probably thought watching the Raiders-Browns game was this. Of all the guys the Browns have drafted in the last, I don't know, 10 years, between Deshaun Kaiser, Johnny Manziel, Brandon Whedon, Kevin Hogan, I'll even throw Brady Quinn in there, Baker Mayfield is the most advanced. Baker Mayfield is the most polished. He is capable of doing more than any quarterback they've previously had. The route concepts the Browns are able to run with Baker Mayfield, the reads he's making, the throws he's capable of. Um I really believe in Baker Mayfield. I think he's the real deal. I think he's fantastic. And it does feel like the tide is turning in Cleveland. That Cleveland Browns team. They might not they might only have one win. I think they're 1-2 and 1, but they're incredibly competitive. Every game they've played in has been close. It's been competitive. When's the last time that happened for the Browns? I know the Browns are again, I know they're 1-2 and 1. When's the last time that happened though that the Browns were incredibly competitive? in all four of their first games coming down to the wire they got to win these closed games at some point I understand that I know why Browns fans are probably maybe furious right now I don't know but I would feel encouraged you should be 4-0 and if you're the Browns that's cool how often does that happen I know they're 1-2-1 and but they're still playing really well I want to stick with Baker Mayfield though how did he look um, there was one thing that Baker Mayfield did. He threw an early interception. I don't know that that was entirely his fault. Remember, it came off the wide receiver's hands. His receiver did fall over. It was a it was a tight window, um, but it was a very completable pass that I think is a worthy risk. It got tipped up. That interception was not entirely Baker Mayfield's fault. Now, he did miss a touchdown on a deep ball. That should be a touchdown. He missed that, but he also had some really good stuff. I mean, on fourth and six, he ran for a first down, He had a big completion to Higgins on 3rd and 12 that I liked. Baker Mayfield is the real deal. He's capable of doing a lot. The word I would think of when I think of Baker Mayfield's first start is imperfect. You know, he missed some throws. He also made other throws. There were a lot of good moments and a lot of bad moments. Uh, You know, I drive a 1995 Toyota Corolla. And I love this car. It's my brother's car. My brother died. He left it to me in his will. Um, It's very sentimental to me. And so when that car breaks down, it's okay. I'm okay with the pain it causes because it's also very important to me. It's a, it brings a lot of joy as well. It's both you know, good moments and bad moments. And Baker Mayfield is the same way. There's going to be a lot of really good moments for Baker Mayfield on the Browns. There's also going to be bad interceptions and fumbles. And you know, we had an interception at the end of regulation that might have cost the Browns a chance at a game-winning t- field goal. But that's Baker Mayfield. I'm not worried about that. In fact, I think everyone's comparing Patrick Mahomes to Brett Favre. Right now, to be honest, the guy who's playing like Brett Favre is Baker Mayfield. He's ripping the ball as hard as he can into tight windows. He's taking chances. It's working for him most of the time. Sometimes, though, he does throw interceptions. He threw that deep pass at the end of regulation. He had that ball in a tight window. He, He didn't force it in. It was a completable pass. But the margin for error is lower, and Baker Mayfield is not afraid of taking risks. That sounds a lot more like Brett Favre than when you described Patrick Mahomes, who has 14 touchdowns, no interceptions. I understand the comparison now. When people said before the draft, Baker Mayfield and Brett Favre have this similar comparison, I get it now. They're moxie. Now, again, I think the way that Baker Mayfield eclipses Brett Favre is preparation. I think where we see Baker Mayfield struggling right now, having interceptions, having these bad moments— I do believe that in the future, we're going to see more. He's going to have bad moments. I don't know he's going to have three turnovers, two interceptions and a fumble every single game. I don't expect that. And so, yes, he's going to take chances. He's going to throw some high-risk passes, complete a lot of them. He'll he'll, He'll throw incompletions other times. I do think Baker Mayfield is going to clean it up. He's in this ugly period where... You know, I compare him to growing a beard. If I start growing a beard right now, between now and having a beard, there's an ugly growth period in the middle. That's what Baker Mayfield is in. And so I'm not concerned at all. The Raiders beat the Browns. It was it sucked, especially I'm a guy, I'm not a Browns fan, but I'm rooting for the Browns. It'd be cool to see them turn it around. Just as a football fan, that's an interesting story. But the Browns are okay. And Baker Mayfield is okay. His first start was actually quite encouraging. He made a lot of great throws. He only had a 51% completion percentage. That's not awesome and exciting, but I'm not concerned. He's going to turn things around. He's going to work it out, and he's just going through growing pains. I'm not concerned at all after Baker Mayfield's first start. I think, in fact, it's incredibly encouraging. (sighs) So right now the Vikings are 0-1-1 in big games. The Vikings have eight really big games this year. They have played in two of them so far. They played the Packers week two. They tied. They played the Rams week four. They lost. So in big games right now, the Minnesota Vikings are 0-1-1. They have no wins, one loss, and a tie. And there are six big games left for the Minnesota Vikings. They play the Eagles week five. They play the Saints week eight. The Bears week 11. They play the Packers week 12. They play the Patriots, an interesting game, week 13. And The Bears again in week 17. Eagles, Saints, Bears, Packers, Patriots, Bears. So again, right now they're 0-1-1 in big matchups against potential playoff teams. Now in these six games left, I'm very curious to see what happens. Remember the Vikings brought in Kirk Cousins, hoping to win these big games. They figured if we can replace Case Keenum with Kirk Cousins, these really big matchup against playoff teams, we can now win these matchups. I'm going to follow these next six games. What's going to happen? Is there a chance the Vikings end up with a winning record in these tough games? We'll find out. I'm, I'm so excited to see what happens. Week five, we get our first test. Next week, the Vikings play the Eagles. It's likely to be one of my... I, every Friday, I do my two most interesting games of the weekend. It's likely that Vikings-Eagles is going to be in that mo, like snake charmer games, the two most interesting games. Um, and it's also worth noting the Eagles murdered the Vikings in the playoffs last year. The only way that the Eagles and Vikings matchup has changed is the Vikings replaced Case Keenum with Kirk Cousins. What kind of impact does Kirk Cousins have in that Vikings Eagles game? They can't go 0-2 and 1 in their first three big matchups the Vikings play. Kirk Cousins is he's got a 3-year deal. He's there for to stay. Um but they need to have a winning record in their big matchups against playoff teams, and I don't know that they're on track to do that. We'll find out. Week 5, Eagles-Vikings, it's a huge matchup. I'm very curious to see what happens. Again, six big games are left. Can the Vikings finish with a winning record against playoff teams? Right now they're 0-1-1. We will see how they finish the year. All right, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, I'm going to explain to you why the Patriots Murdered the Dolphins 38-7. to 7. We're going to talk about USC. Why USC should not fire their head coach, their head football coach, Clay Helton. I like him. A lot of people don't. I'm going to talk about him. We're going to talk about that Colts mistake. The Colts went for it on fourth down. Was it a bad decision? Was it a good decision? What happened? We're going to talk about college football free agency. That is a term that has recently appeared. I like it. In fact, it was called the trade deadline, if I remember correctly. And we're going to talk about Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas broke his leg it's heartbreaking. It's sad. I'll share my thoughts. I'll share my reactions about that. Remember, you can't subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour-long podcast on YouTube as well as my best, most interesting clips. If you like Strong Opinion Sports as much as I do, help me grow by telling your friends about the show. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. Help me grow by telling your friends about the show. My name is Zach Schaumler. I need a glass of water. I will be right back oh right we are back um, you'd be surprised how hard it is to talk to yourself with that last segment 40 minutes like i my mouth goes dry i go kind of crazy it feels like i'm talking really quick i have no idea um, so i really appreciate you guys i want to start with this <clears throat> the patriots beat the dolphins 38 to 7 on sunday um, i saw the score and was like what is going on what's happening so I, I went back, I watched the entire game on NFL Game Pass. I, I went through the entire game. I was very meticulous going through the coaches' footage and different camera angles, yada, yada. Um, the story of the game was this. The Dolphins kept shooting themselves in the foot. The Dolphins played terribly. They kept making mistakes. Penalties cost the Dolphins tremendously on Sunday against the Patriots. Repeatedly on third down, the Dolphins would get a stop. But then they'd have a penalty and give the Patriots a second chance. Third down, third and seven, third and five. They kept getting penalties that would elongate Patriots' drives. And you cannot give Tom Brady and the New England Patriots second chances. The Patriots scored 17 points on drives that should have ended on third down, but were continued because of penalties the Dolphins' defense committed. Unacceptable. 17 points because of penalties. You can't have that. And then there were also 14 points after turnovers. You know, Dolphins' backup center came into the game. He snapped the ball way too fast to Ryan Tannehill. What, whoever's fault you want to make it. Is it Ryan Tannehill's fault? Is it the center's fault? Regardless, the Dolphins fumbled, and on the very next play, the Patriots scored a touchdown. That's seven points off of a turnover. Now, the drive at the end of the game was egregious for the Dolphins. First of all, Ryan Tannehill throws a really bad interception down the right sideline. He throws a deep ball too far inside. He gets picked off. And then the Patriots begin driving. And right as the Dolphins get a stop on third down, oh, guess what? Third and six, a penalty gives Tom Brady and the Patriots a first down, new life. They go down and score another touchdown. Ice the game. It's 38 to nothing. The Dolphins were awful. The Dolphins were not acceptable. I called them a playoff team. I I've, I've very much defended the Dolphins. Not even defended. I've said I've tooted the horn for the Dolphins. They did not deliver on Sunday against the Patriots. Penalties were the problem. Offense and defense. Here's what happened on offense: third and eight, the Dolphins got a false start, making it third and seven, third and thirteen, or second and seven. A holding call made it second and seventeen. First and ten, because of an unsportsmanlike penalty, would become first and twenty or sorry, second and twenty-two. The Dolphins' first that's that's three instances where now the the Dolphins are moved back tremendously because of penalties. You can't have that. Not against the Patriots. The Dolphins' first drive after halftime, they had a holding call, went from 1st and 10 to 1st and 20. I could go on, but I'll stop. I know it's boring. The Dolphins not only played badly, but it's worse than that. The Dolphins were undisciplined, and that is on their head coach, Adam Gase. The Dolphins' head coach allowed the Dolphins to be undisciplined on Sunday. Before the season, Danny Amendola, a receiver for the Patriots, left the Patriots and joined the Dolphins. He had a quote. He called the Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, somewhat of a principal. He said, Bill Belichick is like a principal in high school. You get in trouble, it doesn't feel good. And then Amendola continued and said that his new head coach for the Dolphins, Adam Gase, is one of the guys. Yes. And I criticize this, and this is exactly why. One of the guys doesn't work. The Patriots are not very talented, but I promise you they are one of the most disciplined teams in the NFL. That is because of their coach, Bill Belichick. He's hard on the players. He's very, very strict. And that is the result. The Patriots are one of the most disciplined teams in the NFL. The Patriots culture, not the players, the culture the Patriots have in place is what beat the Dolphins 38-7 to on Sunday. You can't give Tom Brady second and third chances to, on drives to continue them and go get touchdowns. In fact, Tom Brady didn't even play that great. He had two bad interceptions. That, those are rare. You don't pick Tom Brady off two, games in one, two times in one game. The Dolphins did, and they still lost. In fact, they didn't just lose. They got blown out in spite of Tom Brady's mistakes because the Dolphins were simply too undisciplined to win the game. Forget Ryan Tannehill, forget the running game, the fact that they barely had, they had 56 rushing yards, not acceptable. The penalties, you can't have that many penalties against the Patriots. You can't say, we're a playoff team, and then play like that against the Patriots. Discipline is why the Dolphins lost to the Patriots 38-7. I mean, they played good football for three weeks, but that, that's just not okay. You can't, again, say you're a playoff team and then have a performance like that against the New England Patriots. There's a reason why the Patriots won. It's because of the Patriots' culture. On Sunday, the Patriots were more disciplined than the Dolphins, and by a large margin, leading to the victory of the Patriots, 38-7 to over the Dolphins. <clears throat> um, I've spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. I have a couple friends down there in L.A. Many people who are USC fans say this to me. They, they First, they ask a question of me. They say, you know, should USC fire their head coach, Todd, uh, Clay Helton? And then sometimes it's not even a question. Sometimes USC fans just say to me, USC needs to fire their head football coach, Clay Helton. It's ridiculous. It's, it's an absurd belief that LA fans have. USC fans, for some reason, believe that Clay Helton, their head football coach, is not a good football coach. I think you need to understand the history of this man. Not once, but twice... Clay Helton has rescued USC when they made bad decisions, when the athletic director and people at the top in the football program made bad decisions, Clay Helton came to the rescue. In 2013, Lane Kiffin is the USC head coach for five games. He's three and two. And after losing to Arizona State, he gets off the plane at three in the morning and gets fired on the spot. Enter Ed Orgeron. Ed Orgeron is named the interim head coach for USC. He leads them to a 9-3 record and the Rose Bowl game. And right before the Rose Bowl, USC hires Steve Sarkeesian to be their new head coach. But there's still the bowl game to play. This is before the bowl game, and Ed Orgeron leaves the program. So now you have, you fired your head coach, you lost your interim head coach, and you have Steve Sarkeesian, but he's useless because he doesn't know the program. Enter- Clay Helton. Clay Helton comes to the rescue, steps in, they win the Las Vegas Bowl. Not the Rose Bowl, excuse me, I meant Las Vegas Bowl. So that's 2013. Clay Helton comes to the rescue, wins the bowl game. Two years later in 2015, now Steve Sarkeesian is the head coach. He has a bunch of issues off the field. He gets fired midseason. Guess who comes back to save the day? Clay Helton enters again, saves the day, leads USC to a bowl game. So in 2016, finally USC officially names Clay Helton the head football coach of their program. 2016, he goes 10 and 3, wins the Rose Bowl, beats Penn State. It's this epic game, a game like we've never seen before. I think one of literally one of the best games in college football history is USC versus Penn State in that Rose Bowl game. Then in twenty seventeen, the next season, goes ten and three his first year as a head coach, goes eleven and three in his second year as a head coach. Wins the Pac-12 championship. He does lose in the Cotton Bowl. And despite first year going 10-3, second year going 11-3, USC fans are ready to throw the guy out. He's a bad coach. He can't win in big moments. Do ah, 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 ah. you understand? The man is 21-6, 20, and, and you're ready to run him out of town? In the first two seasons that Clay Helton was the head coach at USC, he lost six games in two years. How about you compare that to Pete Carroll, who lost six games in just his first season at USC? Everyone always compares Clay Helton to Pete Carroll. And not only is that ridiculous, you know, I hear things from people in LA like, you know, Clay Helton doesn't fit our city. He doesn't have enough personality. He's too reserved. He's too quiet. He's not loud enough. Oh, you mean you want a loud personality like Lane Kiffin? Or Steve Sarkeesian, because how did that work out? Oh, yeah, they were fired midseason because of issues off the field. Or, you know, Steve Sarkeesian had a drinking problem. You want that guy back? Because that's the difference. That's what Clay Helton is. Clay Helton is stability for USC. USC fans are too hard on Clay Helton. It's, it's disgusting. It's annoying. Yes, Clay Helton is not Pete Carroll. However, this is also the Pac-12. It's no longer the Pac-10. You understand that when USC was dominating college football, when USC had Carson Palmer, Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush, when they were winning national championship after national championship, the reason was USC had no competition in recruiting. Coaching in the Pac-10 at the time, not the 12, the 10, coaching in the Pac-10 when USC was a head coach, when Pete Carroll was a head coach of USC, coaching in that conference was terrible. Now in the Pac-12, you have a bunch of good coaches. dub as a good coach. Washington State has Mike Leach. Oregon has a good coach. Stanford. Arizona State hired Herm Edwards. Chip Kelly has gone to UCLA. Arizona has Kevin Sumlin. Oh, and Utah has Kyle Whittingham. That's at least five, maybe eight, great head coaches in the Pac-12. Remember, Pete Carroll had no competition. Cal had Aaron Rodgers once. That's the best it got. They had Jeff Tedford. Pete Carroll was dominating at USC because he got every single good recruit on the entire West Coast. Now all the recruits are pretty evenly distributed, distributed between UW, Washington State, Oregon, Stanford. UCLA is probably not going to struggle in recruiting. And despite all of that, in fact, I would even point out, did you notice that when Oregon hired Chip Kelly and when Stanford hired Jim Harbaugh, oh, that's magically when Pete Carroll's reign of terror ended? When Pete Carroll stopped dominating the conference is when he had to deal with only two other good coaches in the Pac-10, Pac-12. Yeah, Pete Carroll couldn't handle two other great head coaches and again, Clay Helton has five, maybe eight great coaches in the Pac-12 he's up against. And despite all of that, people want to say that Clay Helton is not a great coach. Year 1 he went 10 and 3, year 2 he went 11 and 3. He won the Pac-12 conference last year, and people are going to fire the man. It's ridiculous. So right now, Clay Helton is 3-2. and two. He's um, not up to a great start. They struggled. They had negative five yards rushing against Texas. I get why people are frustrated, but you also have to remember, USC's starting quarterback is a true freshman. He's 18 years old. He should be a senior in high school. I would cut Clay Helton just a little bit of slack. Give him some time. Give him some patience. In fact, you could even argue Clay Helton has earned the right to have a year off or a a bad year. Give him some patience. Give him some time. For God's sake, stop being so ready to run the man out of town. Why do USC fans expect to win the Pac-12 every single year to dominate? I get why. It's because of Pete Carroll. But college football has changed. Pete Carroll had no competition. Clay Helton has a bunch. Oh, and by the way, Clay Helton has been more successful in his first two years as a head coach than Pete Carroll was. Stop. Stop. Being so hard on Clay Helton, it drives me nuts. I'll relax. I'll relax. (laughs) You relax. Clay Helton is not just a good coach. He is a great football coach. And I'm tired of the narrative that Clay Helton is not LA. He's not personality enough. He's not a good enough coach. Relax, everybody. Clay Helton's a great football coach. He's going to do a great job in the future. If you're a USC fan... Relax and give the man some patience. He certainly earned the right. He won you the Pac-12 conference last year. He has earned the right for you to give him the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> Got a little fired up. Got a little bit a little bit excited. I just I get USC fans constantly sending me that. That's maybe literally the most requested thing to talk about on my channel is. Should USC fire Clay Helton? And I, I finally got to talk to some analysts at pac Network, get their insight. And I, I just, it seems like, yeah, um, hello, Clay Helton's a good coach. Don't fire the man. Okay, uh, let's talk about Frank Reich's mistake. The Colts lost to the Texans 37-34 to 34 on Sunday. And it's the reason why they lost. The situation that led to them losing is what makes people so, so angry. Here's what happened. 27 seconds left in overtime. The score is 34-34. to 34. 27 seconds left. I don't want you to miss that. The Colts have the ball, the ball on their own 43-yard line. It is 4th and 4. And the Colts go for it. They didn't get it. And by the way, that play should have been completed. Andrew Luck missed the throw. It was open. It was there. But the Colts go for it on 4th and 4. 27 seconds left on their own 43-yard line. They don't get it. The Texans get a big gain on the next play. They go down, kick a field goal, win the game. And the Colts, in my opinion, made a mistake. I do not believe the Colts should have gone for it on fourth down. I'm not going to yell and scream. I'm not going to tell you why they're so dumb. People are, are certainly overreacting about this. Um, but Andrew Luck and his head coach, Frank Reich, both defended the decision after the game. They said things like, we don't play for the tie, or we're going for the win. We're going to be aggressive. We liked that. In fact, Frank Reich even said, I would do it again 10 out of 10 times. That's the decision I would make. Uh, And here's why I don't like what happened. It seems like an emotional decision. It seems like a decision that the Colts made because they were like, ah, we're going to win this game. Ah." It did not seem calculated. It seemed emotional. I ask, where is the calculation? Where is the thought process? If he gets up there and gives a an in-depth explanation about the thought process, yada, yada, but all he said was, we don't play to tie. That's emotional. If Frank Reich had given me a deeply thought-out, calculated reason for that decision, I would feel differently about this. Now, here's my perspective. If you think about it deeply and you do make a calculated decision, you don't go for it. That's why it's a mistake. Normally, I wouldn't mind this. I actually like taking risks. I'm a big fan of taking risks. The girl I'm talking to right now has a tattoo on her arm that says, a ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what ships are made for. I like that. I'm a fan of taking risks. The problem was this was a divisional game. So normally at the end of the year, when you look at a loss and a tie, it's the same thing. Losing a game is just as bad as tying in a game. So you might as well take, you might as well go for broke and maybe you lose. But at least if you tie, you lose. When they tally up the standings at the end of the year, it's the same thing. However, eh, not quite. The difference is this was a divisional game. If the Colts are playing almost any other team, there's only three teams the Colts cannot make this decision against. The Titans, the Jaguars, and the Texans. So again, I would say a loss and a tie are basically the same thing at the end of the year. However, and when you make a division standing and you look, you have playoff implications, when you do this against the Texans, you give your in-division rival, a team you are vying against to try to make the playoffs, you gave the Texans a win. You didn't just lose. This loss did not just affect your standings for the playoffs. It also moved the Texans up. It helped a team in your division. That's why it's a problem. I just would say over and over again, the calculated, thought-out decision is, we're going to kick the ball. We're going to we're punt the ball away. You're going to have the ball on your own like 13-yard line, and the game is going to end with a tie. You don't get a win we don't get a loss, and we both tie, and it looks the same at the standings. Because what you don't want to do is give the Texans, your in-division rival, a win. Again, if the Colts are playing the Washington Redskins or the Seahawks or any random team in the NFL that's not in their division, I would actually defend this move. I would have defended this move and said, yes, a loss and a tie, they're calculated the same at the end of the year. But the difference was you helped the team in your division get a win which that also really affects your playoff standings and playoff implications. That is why the Colts made a mistake. It was not going for it. It's who they went for it against. Against the Texans, that's the flaw. Go for the win against the Redskins or the Seahawks or the Browns, but don't do it against a team in your division, and giving them a win allows them to have an upper hand on you when it time comes time to count your wins for the playoffs. <clears throat> some water i need some water we have two topics left i want to talk about two things left um and and really really good stuff for tomorrow as well i got i could talk all day i mean you can see i just we're an hour into the show i mean i'm um, sorry about it <clears throat> so the other day clemson named trevor lawrence a true freshman their quarterback he named they named trevor lawrence the starter And this caused a chain of events. The first thing was that Kelly Bryant, their senior and former starting quarterback, decided to redshirt, and he is transferring out of the Clemson, transferring away. And the reason for this is because a new NCAA rule allows players to play for the first four games, and then at the end of four games, make a decision, do you want to redshirt and, and take a redshirt year, or do you want to keep playing and use your eligibility? And what redshirting does, if you don't know, it means that you can't play the rest of the year but you also don't lose years of eligibility. You you only get four years of eligibility in college. One of those years you can register and then what it does is gives you another fifth year to play college football. Now, Hunter Renfro is a receiver for Clemson and Kelly Bryant transferring affected Hunter Renfro. Hunter Renfro has had to take reps at quarterback in practice, taking away from his receiver reps because he needs to now cover for the fact that Kelly Bryant is transferring away. And so Hunter Renfro gave ESPN this quote. I think it's fantastic. Here is what Hunter Renfro said. Begin quote. Now week four, every single year is going to be the trade deadline and everyone is going to make decisions. I don't like that part of it. End quote. And I like that. I think it's a good way to put it. Um, after four weeks, because you can red shirt and now transfer, it is kind of like an open season for uh, college players to kind of like a trade deadline. Make your decision. Do you want to leave or stay with your program? Except I don't, hate this you know Hunter Renfro says he doesn't like this I disagree with Hunter Renfro I actually really really very much like the new rule first of all what the rule does giving players four games to decide if they want to redshirt or not is that it allows your backups to get a lot of reps in your early blowout games and you're playing like two lane middle of nowhere state you can put in your freshman players give them some reps and still redshirt them later down the road that's awesome Uh, I remember the way redshirting used to work is that if you played even one down, you could not redshirt that entire year. The only way to redshirt was to not play at all. And you would have your kids who were redshirting wouldn't even ever shoot down their freshman year. They wouldn't even show up. The other thing that I like about this is that it does lead to more people transferring than before. You have four games to figure out. Are you going to play? Are you not going to play? If you're not going to play, you can redshirt and then you can transfer somewhere else. I like that. It gives you more options. It gives athletes mobility. It gives them more directions to go with their life. I really, really like that. Because if a guy wants to play, he's now allowed to leave. He can go to a smaller school. He can go to another big school. He has options. If he wants to get on the field, he can go find a situation where he can get on the field. Because coaches lie to players all the time in recruiting. It happens constantly. A player will be told, your freshman year, you're going to be our starting corner or our starting safety. And he gets there and it was a total lie the guy told him to get him to show up. And now he's locked into a place. He's signed already. He can't leave. A lot happens to a lot, a lot of players. They're promised playing time and they never get it. Now things have changed. If a coach lies to a player, the player can simply go, oh, I was lied to. I'm going to shirt and I'm going to leave. It's great. It's really, really awesome. I like the new rules. I like what they did because they allow players to have more options. And I'm all for players to have more options. They should be able to go where they want to go. They should be able to go somewhere where they're going to play because this is their entire future. And if you're lied to by a coach, or if your coach leaves or something happens and you get beat out, a guy like Kelly Bryant can now still play his senior year rather than sitting on the bench and, and missing out on a senior year of football. How sad would that be? Your senior year of football, if you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you are probably an athlete or even if you're not an athlete, what if the thing you loved, the thing you love to do more than anything, your hobby, your passion, the reason you went to college, what if that was taken away from you and you couldn't do your final year of that? That would be very painful for me. I'm sure it would have been painful for Kelly Bryant. Now there's a solution. I love the new rule. Even if it opens up every week four of college football becomes a new trade deadline. If you want to call it that way, I actually like that. I I think it's a good move because it gives athletes more mobility than before. One more topic. One more thing left I want to talk about. We're going to talk about Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas is a member of the Seattle Seahawks. He's a safety, um, not a member of the Seahawks for much longer. He held out before the season started. What that means is he didn't show up for training camp. He missed all of training camp, um, and he did show up right in time for the season opener against the Denver Broncos. The reason why Earl Thomas held out was because he wanted a new contract. He said, either pay me money or trade me away to another team who will give me a new contract. The Seahawks refused to do either. They would not pay Earl Thomas, and they would not trade him away to another team. Well, uh, week four against the Arizona Cardinals, Earl Thomas broke his leg. And now he's probably not going to get another big contract when he's a free agent next year um, because he's coming off an injury. It does really significantly hurt his value. And uh, as Earl Thomas was carted off the field, he flipped his team the bird. He flipped off the Seattle Seahawks sideline. And first of all, this is great drama. It's one of the reasons I don't mind it. But I also totally understand where Earl Thomas is coming from. Earl Thomas has every reason to be frustrated. One of Earl Thomas' teammates and Seahawks linebacker, um, Bobby Wagner, said it best. This is a, a quote from Bobby Wagner. He said this. If he doesn't come, then he's considered not a team player. And if he does come and gets hurt, then people are going to say he shouldn't have come. If I was him, I'd be pissed off too. That's what Bobby Wagner said. Yeah, I like that a lot. I I agree with that. I feel bad for Earl Thomas. I think Earl Thomas is a, a sad, sad example of how not to handle a contract negotiation. And here's the weirdest part of this story is that immediately after this was reported that it, it came out that Earl Thomas broke his leg. Immediately afterward, a report came out that Le'Veon Bell, who's holding out from the Pittsburgh Steelers, is going to report to the Steelers before by week eight. So the Steelers have a bye week, week seven. He's probably going to show up for the bye week and then play week eight. Now remember, Le'Veon Bell also held out during training camp. He handled it differently than Earl Thomas did, though. He did not show up for week one. He continued the holdout. He's still taking part in his holdout. And um, if I'm Le'Veon Bell, I'm at home watching what happened to Earl Thomas, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I am not going to play until I get paid. It's not worth it. I'm not playing until I have guaranteed money and a new contract. Because if I get hurt, I'm going to miss out on a lot of money, which is what just happened to Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas is going to miss out on a lot of money. Because he just broke his leg. And that's sad to me. Now, it's also worth noting that, um, you know, maybe Le'Veon Bell does sign an extension. Maybe he does, you know, make money. Who knows? Maybe he does get traded. There's a lot of things that could happen for Le'Veon Bell. Um, here's what I would do if I was Le'Veon Bell. I heard James Harrison talk about this. James Harrison said, if I'm Le'Veon Bell, I'm going to show up. I'm going to practice. I'm going to show what I have. And then every Saturday, magically, I'm going to have some kind of injury. and I'm not going to be able to play on Sunday. And this is a very strategic move. The reason for this is because Le'Veon Bell needs to sign his franchise tag by week 10. He needs to sign his franchise tag and show up to the Steelers by week 10. Because if he doesn't show up by week 10, then Le'Veon Bell will not accrue another year of work towards his towards his uh, NFL, whatever you want to call it, players association, membership, whatever whatever the thing is. But what would happen is if he doesn't show up by week 10, the the— The thing that will go on is that Le'Veon Bell will not be a free agent at the end of the year. And if Le'Veon Bell wants to be a free agent, he must show up by week 10. So again, that's what I would do. Because I think money's out there for him. I I would I would do what James Harrison is saying. I would show up and I would not play in a game. I would every Saturday, right before the game, magically get an injury. Because money's out there for Le'Veon Bell. He's gonna make there's a team out there that's gonna pay Le'Veon Bell. They're willing to pay him. He just needs to make it to free agency without getting hurt. And I I watched Earl Thomas break his leg live, and I said, oh, no. And if I'm Earl Thomas watching that, I'm going, yeah, until I get a guaranteed contract, until I know there's money coming, I'm not going to risk missing out on all that money by playing and and risking injury. It's just not worth it. I I saw what happened to Earl Thomas. It's sad he lost a bunch of money. And uh, I would be reluctant to play without a new contract, without guaranteed money. If I'm Le'Veon Bell, I would be very, very reluctant to play. All right, guys, that is all I have. That is all I have to say today. Tomorrow is going to be a great podcast. I'm going to break down the 49ers backup quarterback, CJ Beathard. How did he play on Sunday? It was actually quite interesting. He's better than I thought. We're going to do Deadly Dozen tomorrow. We're going to do Zach is a genius tomorrow. I'm going to talk about college quarterbacks. I'm going to talk about Dwayne Haskins. He's the Ohio State quarterback. He very much intrigues me. I'm going to do my top five NFL prospects after five weeks of college football, and I'm going to tell you why Washington State quarterback Gardner Minshew is a playmaker. He's not a playmaker with his legs, and he's not necessarily even a playmaker with his arm, but Gardner Minshew is a playmaker. I'll break that down. I will explain that to you. Remember, you can subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour-long podcast on YouTube, as well as my best most interesting clips. If you like Strong Opinion Sports as much as I do, help me grow by telling your friends about the show. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. Help me grow by telling your friends about the show. I want to put the show someday on Twitch. I want to hire a producer so I can do more show. I want to do a lot of stuff. I need to grow more for us to do that. So share it with your friends, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Give us a rating. Give me a rating on iTunes. It'd mean a lot to me. And uh, help me grow by telling your friends about the show. My name is Zach Schaumler. I just appreciate you guys so much. I love making the show. I love that you guys listen. I'm doing another one tomorrow, which is Wednesday. I hope you guys have a great day. Ba-dum-bum-bam. We are...